even the most revolutionary art, still the basic thing that's going on in any art, whether it's reactionary or progressive, if it's powerful, effective art, is that it's getting deeply into contradictions, into opposing forces. This conversation discusses and occasionally describes violence. He said, you want peace in Vietnam? And we said, yeah, peace. And he said, you really want peace in Vietnam? Yeah, peace. You really want peace in Vietnam? Yeah, peace, peace, peace. Well, you're not going to get it with all these fucking flags waving around. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with David. Hello, David. Hello, Dave. <laughs> and hello out there in uh, internet land. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you from uh, stand-up tragedy, performing at some of your events and seeing you perform at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I don't remember when we first met. It was somewhere on the spoken word scene, though, I'm sure. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, probably in the run-up to, in the run-up to the first time we took stand-up tragedy up to Edinburgh, I think. Um, I sort of started to get to know people in the spoken word scene. I think uh, I put together a, a spoken word uh, album to raise money for the Free mm, Fringe. Yeah. I think you submitted to that, I think. And so yeah. that was the first time I kind of became aware of you and heard your track for that, which I enjoyed. And so then I, I think I contacted you about doing a preview with us in the run-up to Edinburgh that year. Uh, and that's when I first saw you really doing your stuff on stage. And then I saw your show that first year as well, which... It impressed me and uh, like on a technical level really impressed me on a on a emotional level really engaged me and on a political and intellectual level probably challenged me I'd say in lots of ways as well as as well as I connected with some bits and not with others so it was an interesting experience for me I was going to say challenged when you for that third category as yeah well. yeah yeah Ch- and challenged being challenged is good I think yeah in fact uh, just to kind of leap into things in a way that um, I've just had a we were just talking about someone I won't mention a name but we were having a discussion a political discussion about how you change the world kind of and I was saying that that a lot of the, the left especially the mainstream left seems to have this mental model that the way it works is that I talk to you and I'm so incredibly reasonable and logical that you're one over to my position and then you talk to two people and you're logical and reasonable and you win them over and they talk to each to two people and gradually the word spreads. And I was saying, I don't think it works that way. It does a little bit, obviously, but that because people are kind of programmed to hang on to their ideas and they even hear arguments differently depending on what they already think before they hear the argument. And that more often the way I've seen political change work and the way I've changed is that I had certain views that I'd really never questioned in my entire life. And then something happened, the world shook or turned upside down and suddenly I started asking questions about things that I'd never, that I'd taken for granted all my life. And then I looked around and, and also I remembered people who had said things that I just flat out disagreed with. And for me... I'll just, I guess I'll launch into this story because it, it was a seminal experience for me. I was at uh, a big peace march in San Francisco in 1968 or 9, I think it was. And it was a big, big, big uh, half a million people, which was huge for those days. We marched to the Golden Gate Bridge. 
both Spocks spoke, Dr. Spock and Spock from Star Trek, <laughs> and some liberal senators, and uh, good vibes, Crosby, Stills, and Nash saying, marijuana smoke wafting up to the heavens. And then David Hilliard, who was the uh, highest-ranking member of the Black Panther Party, who wasn't either dead or in jail by that point, got up to make a speech and said, you want peace in Vietnam? And we said, yeah, peace. And he said, you really want peace in Vietnam? Yeah, peace. You really want peace in Vietnam? Yeah, peace, peace, peace. Well, you're not going to get it with all these fucking flags waving around. And we were like, kind of, whoa, what's this? And then he went on and bitter, angry language to say how much the people of the world hated the American flag and what it stood for and how stupid we were and how much our heads were up our asses if we thought we were actually marching for peace when we were waving the flag of the biggest butchers on the planet. And we tried to boo him off the stage, actually. It's a very bad vibe. We tried to boo him off the stage, but we were too stoned. And I went home thinking about it, though. And a year later, when Nixon ordered the invasion of Cambodia and the murders of Kent and Jackson State happened, I found myself at a college campus that I didn't even go to, having organized a, a rally to feed into the bigger rally that would feed into the bigger rally. And with a collective of people I just met, and we drew straws to see who was going to be the speaker, and I got the short straw. And the only model I had, really, was... David Hilliard, and when I got up, I gave, you know, it was pretty close to, I didn't copy his speech exactly, but probably, I, I probably copied more of his style than his content, but uh, his content was there too. It was, I mean, thinking about the American flag got me thinking, and, and then about flags of imperialist countries in general. Right. And yeah, I learned more from being pissed off by David Hilliard than from being wonderfully won over by Spocks and senators and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, that corresponds with my own understanding of, like, how I've developed politically. All of the major changes in my outlook in my politics have always come from being initially challenged and disagreeing. And then mm -hmm. I've changed uh, my position as I've sort of listened to that. You know, not in the moment. I, I, I didn't have, like, I don't have these moments of, like, oh, yeah, you're right, actually, I, I completely changed my view. But over time, I've completely changed my view on, on, on many things for those kind of reasons. That kind of ties into my outlook on art as well. Um, that even revolutionary, political revolutionary, I don't like to use the word political art because everything is political. Right. It's usually because people are too wimpy to say revolution or something heavier. Yeah. Even the most revolutionary art, still the basic thing that's going on in any art, whether it's reactionary or progressive, if it's powerful, effective art, is that it's bringing, it's getting deeply into contradictions into opposing forces and like you can do a play that's about racism and say racism is bad and nobody learns anything from it it's, and, and it can often be end up being a racist play because you're just kind of making nice about the whole topic that what you want to do is do a play or a poem or whatever kind of that, that brings out the, the contradictions in, inherent and why are people racist what's the attraction you know and you don't even have to you don't even have to in, in fact generally you don't solve the problem you just put the problem there and show both opposing forces yeah I mean, that, that, that resonates with some of my thinking about art as well, I guess. So the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? I'm a street musician, and I'm a writer of anything that I think has a chance of getting heard or seen. And more especially, I did a couple of shows at the Edinburgh Fringe before the Free Fringe existed. 
But in the last three years, I've done a spoken word show at the Edinburgh Free Fringe every year. And that's kind of my life plan, actually, is to do a new show at the Edinburgh Free Fringe every year until one of us dies. <laughs> and I start working on the new show, um, actually, before I'm even done then. And I try and put it on in as many places as I can outside of the Fringe. More often, I just get to do bits of it here and there. And uh, this year, uh, I hope to be doing a play that uh, continues the themes that I've been doing in the solo shows. Right. And maybe we'll get into that. Yeah, we will, definitely. Yeah, before we get to what you're doing now, I mean, when did it all start for you? When did you, when did you become interested in... Well, I guess there's two strands here, isn't there? When did you become interested in making art and when did you become politicised or politically aware? Okay, well, art. My first love was drawing and painting. And uh, I guess the f first really big event in my life, when, when I, I was about 12, and I discovered oil paints. And like, watercolors are not a little boy's medium. You know, they're very unforgiving. But oil paint, you can smear it on and scrape <laughs> it off and you wash it all down with turpentine and start over again and smear it on. And you can use it like toothpaste or, yeah. or, or like watercolors if you want. And so I was filling canvases with oil paint as fast as I could steal them from the local art store. I was a really good thief, so I was turning out a lot of paintings, and my, my parents didn't realize how expensive this stuff was, so they, they didn't cotton on for a long time. And in the meantime, my dad, who was a reporter for the local newspaper, was covering the trial of an art teacher at the Columbia Basin Junior College, which in the U.S. they have a system of junior colleges, which are like the first two years of university if you're didn't get high enough grades or don't have enough money to go to a full-scale university. You do the first two years of junior college and then transfer for the last two. And uh, the art teacher's name was Francis Coelho, and he was an artist who had a national reputation as a painter. And his wife was, uh, they had been in Chicago, and his wife was, as, as I recall, the second viola in the Chicago Philharmonic. They were that level of success and, and quality. And they moved to Pasco, where I lived, which is out in the outbacks of uh, the back end of Washington State, uh, the desert area, uh, because it was a one-person art department. Well, first of all, because they had toddlers and they, they, wanted, they grew up in countryside and they wanted their, their, their kids to, to grow up outside of the city as well. But also because they had a, an art department there that was one person, he could run the whole show, and it was very well supplied with the physical stuff necessary. And the way he would teach his class was that the first day of each uh, term, he would take his students on a tour of the facilities. There's a clay, there's a carpentry tools, there's a canvas, there's the pigment, there's a door to my office. It's always open. You want to talk about painting, sculpture, football, politics, religion, whatever. I'm there. And then he was done teaching for the term. But he was there in his office, and he was available, and he would talk about anything, and he would walk around and look at people's paintings, and he would never say very much more than that's interesting, except that he didn't say it the way theater people do, you know, when you see a friend who is in a really embarrassing production, and you're yeah, yeah. well, yeah, that was really interesting, Fred, yeah. <laughs> but no, he was interested, you could tell that. He was really interested in watching how these people would grow and blossom. And then at the end of the term, he would have them bring in their best work, all of their work if they'd just done a few things or their best stuff, and talk about what they thought they'd learned that term. And then he would ask them what grade they thought they should have, and he would write that down, and that was their grade. And once 
maybe twice I, in the three years he was there, uh, he got someone who he hadn't seen ever who walked in with a, the, the, you know, a nothing virtually and said, give me an A, and he said, buzz off. But most of, for the three years, the only time that he ever felt compelled to argue with students other than that was that some of his best students would give themselves too low a grades, you know, and he would say, well, listen, you know, Susie, you're a perfectionist, that's why you're such a good artist, but you, you shouldn't apply that to the grading system, you know, yeah. really think about right. this. Within the first year, students from Columbia Basin Junior College, which was famous all over the, the country for football and basketball and baseball and golf and welding and agriculture, had students winning prizes at exhibitions all over the West Coast. And football players were skipping practice to, to get into the art studio, and, and the place was just buzzing with excitement about ideas and, and art and philosophy. And so, of course, they fired him. And he appealed, and it went to trial, and my dad was covering the, the trial. So when I started buzzing out all these paintings, dad took me out there, introduced him, and said, uh, my son's an artist too, not wants to be an artist, because I'm painting, I'm an artist. And Francis said, oh, I'd love to see some of your work. I happen to have some of it in the car. He looked at it and said, that's interesting. And I knew he was really interested. And so for the next year, while the trial went on, and which he eventually lost, because they, they, they can do whatever they want in these small school systems, uh, I would carry my wet paintings out to him through the desert windstorms, uh, made a nice effect on the oil painting. <laughs> and he would say, that's interesting. So that was my first big thing. And then at about that time, when I was 14, I went off to uh, Spokane, 150 miles away, to uh, study to be a priest. And I couldn't paint there. And this is my second big influence. I had a very charismatic, kind of inspiring, but very, very lazy English teacher. And so the way that he combined these contradictions when he would, uh, he would give us writing assignments that were like, the first writing assignment was 11 words plus or minus one word. If you had more than two words off in either direction, you failed. Wow, okay. Uh, and by the end of the year, we had only gotten up on the largest assignments to 125 words plus or minus three words. So that meant that he didn't have to spend a lot of time reading essays. <laughs> or, well, creative writing, because mostly yeah. it was creative writing that he assigned us. But on the other hand, he could look at it very carefully. And so that got me... I mean, my dad, he was a reporter and had worked in other things like that. So I had that kind of background anyway. But that got me really... It had a good and a bad effect. It, it got me... Uh, thinking about the, the sound and the weight and the meaning of every single word. But it also made me kind of constipated, you know, in terms of turning out big stuff. Right. And I have this theory that there's roughly two different kinds of writing. I mean, it's a continuum, you know, but the two poles are the constipated and the diuretic. And the constipated is like you squeeze out these, these little small verses or poems or whatever they are, like perfectly formed, painful, hard little square green bricks, you know. And you try and get each, everything, you know, just perfect. And the others, you just spew things out. And I've learned over the years, but it took me a long time to get it, to learn about the diuretic, that that works as well. And that often when you've spewed something out and you go back to revise it, 
it's very hard to revise. You can't make very many changes because your unconscious has actually organized it in a way that's not so obvious and not like perfectly formed and square, but has this internal logic that if you mess with it very much, you can just throw it all out of kilter. Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. So you, hang on, you say so you study, you were studying to be a priest. Yeah. I mean, what I know of your politics, I mean, it's, it's fair to say you're, you're a communist, right? Yeah. I mean... I, I think I would say a revolutionary communist okay. because there's so much baggage attached to all sorts of uh, communist parties and groups that I, that I despise as right. well as others that, that I respect but think that it's time to go beyond them. Right. But the word, I mean, but I mean, communism itself. I mean, uh, revolutionary communism, or well, it's 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 it doesn't fit with being studying to be a priest, right? Well, it kind of does. You know, Stalin studied to be a priest, right? And uh, a lot of the, your best atheists are uh, uh, ex-seminarians or even ex-priests, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it makes logical sense <laughs> that someone would turn, you know, completely the opposite direction. That's that, and that, and that has happened many times. But Marx called, you know religion the opiate of the people and you've done a lot of work sort of against religion or like like challenging religion uh-huh. uh, and so it's surprising to me that even so even though I should should go oh yes of course pre- people who say to be priests often become atheists uh, it did surprise me a couple things about that one of the most eloquent writers on religion is Marx if you read his his earlier stuff I think it's in conspects it's just to Hegel where he first uses that phrase the opiate of the masses And as someone pointed out to me, uh, uh, another ex-Catholic actually, uh, (laughs) is that the actual, the full phrase in the Communist Manifesto is, religion is the opiate of the masses, comma, the heart of a heartless world. And he really got the last part of that. He writes quite eloquently, and I think it's conspectus on Hegel, about why people turn to religion and how how it answers a a yearning for for justice and and beauty and kindness in the world. And while at the same time... prevents them from getting closer to that, but he got the appeal very much. The other is that as studying as a priest, uh, studying, you know, the kind of the the theology on the kind of the highest level of, you, you kind of start with the basic principle, God is love, and then logically develop that into if there is a God, then this, who is, is all loving, then this must follow, and this must follow, and this must follow. And it is a bit convoluted since you end up with a God who is not just loving but is the essence of love who if we fail to choose him we end up in eternal torment forever right, right. but then the, the the sort of the elevated theological understanding of that internal tor- eternal torment isn't fire or devils with pitchforks it's just being absent from God and that's the ultimate torture yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so but the other the other way that it's surprising, or it might surprise people who are listening, to discover that you're a revolutionary communist, broadly speaking, is that you're an American, and you know, America has historically not been too into communism. Well, uh, um, when I first came over here in '83, and I was in, I, I first came over, I, I first came over to Berlin to be part of the uh, the big anti uh, the hot autumn the big anti Pershing and cruise missile demonstrations that were happening all over Europe but I came with a, a group that was organized by the 
Revolutionary Communist Party, the Maoists, the main Maoist party in the U.S. And so we ended up in Turkey, in Germany, because there are a lot of Turkish Maoists there. And uh, what I discovered was that people's view of what Americans were like was pretty much conditioned by Dallas. <laughs> in fact, there was a, a big poster campaign going on at the time. Uh, Cafe Ona Dosa Milk is like Dienstag Ona Dallas. Coffee without Klausen milk or something like that is like Tuesday without Dallas. <laughs> but that, I think that changed a lot in the, the riots of... Uh, in the 90s who was the guy that they beat up in Los Angeles on video camera and then he still got they still got off uh, you know who I'm talking yeah, about yeah I do and, I, and I'm, I'm going to curse myself for not remembering Cur- his name either well I have an excuse I'm old enough to remember <laughs> his name well you know uh, yeah and when and when that happened and the riots kicked off then people it kind of dawned on I mean they knew that but is it Rodney think, King Rodney King right yeah. I'm pleased I call thank that. you <laughs> uh there's so many names of murder victims in the U.S. to remember. Right. But, uh, but Not yeah. just in the U.S., I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, all <laughs> right. Murders going on over the world, yeah. Of that particular type of murder right. victim, of police killing black people. So I think people's view of Americans then, they have much more of a view of the U.S. being a divided country now than being Dallas. Right. That They, they realize that there's a huge black population, a huge Mexican and, and Chicano population, and that there's even some poor white working class people there, which they may not have clocked on to. But it is true that, especially in the last decade or so, that the U.S. has just gone so far to the right. I mean, the, the, every single major Republican candidate now is, you'd have to say, they're, they're not just like kind of right wing, they're fascists. Right. You know, Donald Trump, the only difference between Donald Trump and Hitler is Hitler had a better, bigger, more organized organization behind him but Donald Trump is 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 terms of his ideology and what he's saying I, I don't think you could you could move him <laughs> say that Hitler was very far to the right of what he's saying right and I so I've, you know because of Facebook you know you're kind of connected with your whole history now you us old codgers get on it and find out about it. and I go back and some of my it's interesting to to be in contact with my old high school classmates from uh, the mid-60s and some of my best, some people I didn't know are just, I think, man, what a cool dude. I wish I'd known them in high school, you know. But then also some of my best friends are just, you know, just racist and, and uh, it's white people are discriminated against now, you know. And, and uh, I'm, my 50th high school reunion is coming up and it's going to be really interesting, I, I think. I'm wondering if I'm going to get in fights there. <laughs> You're going you're gonna to go. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a totally an American thing. I, I, in fact, my, when I was with the woman who had become my ex-wife, I think we almost broke up when she discovered I was thinking, uh, thinking of going back to my 20-year high school reunion. I never, I've never been to a high school reunion, but the idea that I would even consider it just appalled her. But in the U.S., everyone goes to high school. There's no splitting off. There's no vocational school or, you know, sixth form or this or that. Everyone goes to the same school. And then, especially in my time, not all that many people went off to college. So your last big unified experience was high school. And that's why, I mean, it's a genre, American movie genre, isn't it? You know. Yeah, like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I'd go back. I'd go back. It would be interesting, but I, I think I would go back to a, to a high school reunion if if, if something like that happened uh, for for where I from where I'm from. But I don't think it will. 
but you never know. I mean, every time I go back to where I grew up, you know, I, or the various places I grew up, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, you can't ever go back, but you, you, you can go back and like, it won't be the same, but it, it, it will be something new you'll learn about yourself, I think, when you challenge yourself with your past selves and look at them. So yeah, so I guess, so we've kind of got a little bit ahead of ourselves in that we know where your kind of politics have, have got to, like that you, you now would define as a revolutionary uh, communist. And we know that you, you studied to be a priest, but, but how did your politics kind of evolve? Well, okay, so I was involved in the, the anti-war movement in the U.S., and I would have, you'd say I was like a commuter or something, you know, I was like a lot of people, I wasn't trying to organize anything, but I would go to demonstrations, uh, both in Seattle, where I went, when I left Pasco, I, I went to the University of Chicago for six months and then got kicked out for taking LSD. When it was legal, right. it was illegal to sell it or to give it to your pet, but possessing it or taking it yourself was still legal, but they kicked me out for offending the morals of the community. Right. Uh, and then I went to, uh, I, I stayed out for six months and worked on the railroad to earn more money and went to back to Seattle University, which was a Jesuit university in Seattle where a lot of my friends were going. And uh, I, was, I was participating in anti-war stuff in Seattle and also commuting down to San Francisco for some of the big ones. I went to the big People's Park demonstration, which was... Uh, um, was, I won't go into all that. It was, but I'd go down for some of those things. And what happened... Okay, I guess the big change for me came... Uh, it had to do with a broken, a, a tragic love life. Right. <laughs> so I went down to uh, L.A. with a friend, uh, with two friends in a big orange former United parcel truck and went around to all the record companies trying to sell my songs to them and become famous singer-songwriter. And this was in the days when you could drop into the major record companies and say, I'd like to see someone, here's my tape, and they would say, okay, come back in two or three days and, and I'll tell you what I think of it. Right. And mostly they were, they, I remember one particular said, well, we like your songwriting, you know, but your singing is, it's okay, but if you could just be sort of more original, like if you sounded more like Joe Cocker. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm down there, and I'm getting letters from the, um, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who was my first uh, true love, uh, my first person. I mean, I had girlfriends in Pasco, but you kind of had to hide your intellectual interests if you didn't want to become a pariah in Pasco. And this was someone, she was, she was a fair bit younger than me. She was like four years younger than me, which is a lot when I was, I was like 20, 21 then. She was... Uh, uh, senior in high school right um but she grew up in seattle in the big city and and went to the queen anne which was one of the central and her dad was a science teacher and she was around she was much more sophisticated than me in lots of ways even though she never got kicked out of university for taking lsd which was my one foot up on her <laughs> uh and uh yeah i was madly in love and she seemed to be madly in love with me and but i was getting these Letters, occasional letters from her while I was down there camped out on the coast of, on the beach in Malibu saying well I think it's good for my head that you're away for a while and, which just panicked me so I goaded everyone into driving back to Seattle we got there on a Sunday afternoon uh, we actually had to be towed I drove the van 
too high a speed for like 20 hours non-stop not sleeping until it died about 60 miles outside of Seattle and, and my friend's dad came and towed us back to Seattle and we went to Volunteer Park where we would always hang out in the summer, it was the summer and uh, we didn't know because we were kind of off the grid that the invasion of Cambodia had happened on Friday the Kent State had happened and that all this stuff had happened we got back on Sunday and went to the park and sure enough it was a sunny day there's marijuana smoke floating above the park a big drum circle in the center with flutes and drums and stuff and there was my girlfriend and I facing away from me and I we were running up to her and just before I get to her she turns to the guy sitting next to her that I didn't notice and throws her arms around him and kisses him and uh, my whole world was destroyed I couldn't sleep uh, for uh, hardly eat or sleep for a couple weeks and the next day Monday my friend was going on campus at the University of Washington to register for uh, uh, to go back to, to university and so I went with him because I didn't know what to do with myself or my life or anything. And while I was there, this big crowd of angry students came marching by and, and stopped quite near me and started screaming obscenities at the, uh, the uh, chancellor of the university's office. And I thought, yeah, I can get into that. So I joined <laughs> the crowd. And then it marched to University Avenue. And Seattle is this long, narrow city uh, with uh, the Interna Interstate 5. It's this kind of artery and bordered on one side by the Pacific Ocean, the Puget Sound, and on the other by Lake Washington. And University Avenue goes parallel to the Interstate 5, just a couple blocks away. And we're marching up University Avenue. The, the Socialist Workers' Party, which is not the same as the one here, if you're into these kinds of <laughs> things, it's the same as uh, the, the party that corresponds to the SWP here is the International Socialists. And the Socialist Workers' Party and IS were split from each other at some point well before this. The Socialist Workers' Party in the U.S. was much more conservative. They dominated the anti-war movement. Uh, and uh, they were at the head of the march. And you could hear whispers in the crowd saying, freeway, freeway. Uh, and when we got to the top of University Avenue, it was a choice to turn right, how appropriate, to go back onto campus, or turn left to go blockade the freeway. And the SWP with their banners turned right, and the entire rest of the crowd turned left. <laughs> and so the SWP grabbed their banners and ran back up to the head of the march and, and were forced to... And, and so we marched to the, the freeway, and we're standing on the overpass overlooking the freeway, you know, thousands of cars buzzing by. And by now, there's maybe about like 500 people in the demonstration. And then we just marched down into the on-ramp and blockaded the freeway and shut it down completely. And it was such an amazing feeling of power. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever really felt the kind of power of, of, uh, of both of, of being part of a, a group, a mass group of people, and the power of going giant fuck you to the state and the power establishment and, and, and in an effective way. Right. And uh, that night I went to a meeting at the university campus where they had a torchlight meeting of uh, a couple thousand people planning for the demonstration that was going to be uh, uh, 20,000 people. And uh, uh, somebody, uh, uh, Michael Lerner from the Seattle Liberation Front, 
got up and said, anyone that wants to join the Seattle Liberation Front Collective, we're going to meet in this room right after this. So I went to that room. Now, Seattle Liberation Front was a kind of a loose-knit group of anarchist collectives, uh, including people from the, the, what became the Weather other, Underground and people that um, had come up from, from uh, Cornell uh, to Seattle because they thought it would be a good place to organize, and then just a lot of native kind of left-wing anarchist socialists. And uh, uh, they'd had a big demonstration uh, when called uh, TDA the day after the day after the the Chicago conspiracy trial, uh, where they tried seven white anti-war leaders, uh, Abby Hoffman, uh, people like that, along with uh, uh, Bobby Seale, who was gagged and chained because he kept standing up asking for his right to represent himself, and the judge had denied it. So they actually gagged him and chained him to his chair while the trial went on. And when the verdict came down, which everyone knew was going to be guilty because the way it was set up, there was a big demonstration outside the courthouse. It became a riot. And we had a new conspiracy trial, which was the Seattle Seven, the people who were supposed to have organized that, which was mostly Seattle Liberation Front people. Um, so anyway, we, I go into this meeting, and, and uh, uh, the, Michael says, OK, we divide the room in half this way, vertically, and this way, horizontally. Okay, you're a collective, you're a collective, you're a collective, and you're a collective. And you don't have to live together, although it's a good idea, but the important thing is that you do actions together, you know, organize in high schools or unemployment offices or, or something like that. And it's also a good idea to go out in the country together and drop acid at some point <laughs> so that you know that none of you are police agents. Right. So my... Uh, uh, Collective uh, met the next night. Hello. Uh, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, I take this opportunity to say that we're recording in your kind of like balcony area outside of your flat, and so that's why there's aeroplanes occasionally, oh, yeah. and that's why there's people passing us. Happy New Thank Year, you. yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a nice opportunity for me to reveal where we are. So yeah, sorry. So we had a meeting the next night and uh, planned for this demonstration I talked about before where I ended up being the main speaker knowing nothing about what I was saying. And uh, we almost broke up that night because half of the collective were like rock-throwing anarchists and the other half were like pacifists. Uh, <laughs> um, but we organized that demonstration and then a couple nights later we did break up. But the ferment was there and I ended up... I, we went how, apartment hunting. This is how... Buzzing things were around Capitol Hill. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of hippie kind of people live there. Seattle Community College, which is a very working class and very big community college, was based on Capitol Hill. And UW wasn't the University of Washington wasn't too far away. And we, my friend and I, we were looking for flat to rent, and we knocked on the door. And there's this cool kind of couple, kind of hippie kind of couple, turned out to be the not the owners but the managers of this big house that had a lot of different, subdivided into a lot of different apartments. We go up and listen to uh, John Coltrane and smoke some dope. And he says, by the way, with everyone else in the house here is in the Seattle Liberation Front Collective. Uh, would you be interested in, in being part of it? <laughs> so I, I was very, very active in, in Seattle Liberation Front for a year. Uh, I and some of my friends started a, an underground newspaper to replace the Helix, which had died recently, which was the, had been the oldest underground newspaper in the country. And uh, in the course of that time, 
uh, I came to see that the Seattle Liberation Front, which, which was supposed to have no leaders, just had no accountable leadership. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the coolest and the most articulate and kind of the most privileged uh, background people were the actual leaders. And that was, so that was one leg of my kind of walk towards communism. Another was that uh, I, was, I was around kind of very, anarchists who were very well read as well. And one of them especially encouraged me to read Lenin's The State and Revolution because although he came to the wrong conclusion in their opinion, he stated the contradiction the most clearly of virtually anyone else who had written that, uh, and that both that the ultimate goal of people who call themselves sincerely communists and people who call themselves anarchists is a state of anarchy where there is no state no armed force, no armed power that can enforce things. There, may, there, there would of course have to be a worldwide organization of some sort because we're so big and interconnected, but there would be no power structure of mm-hmm. that sort. And where anarchists differed from communists was that anarchists thought you should just smash the state that exists <laughs> and have a state of anarchy, and communists thought that that was not possible, that you needed to have power to reorganize things, to power to change schools and education and, and organize production in a way that didn't involve exchange of money because and, and you couldn't do that overnight. And I was convinced by Lenin. Uh, that was and and so and then so that was the second leg and then because I'm walking on three legs here, I guess the third was that there uh, there was a group in Seattle that was had come up from the Bay Area not the people, but the, the, the ideas in the organization, called the Revolutionary Union, which was the precursor to what's now the Revolutionary Communist Party. And they just earned my respect, as they were the hardest workers, they were the most principled in, in discussion and debate. And the idea of building a united front where there would be a lot of different groups involved, uh, uh, and the, the, the Revolutionary Party would just be would try to be, give leadership to that, but they would not be in command of it because it would involve people who weren't full-time revolutionaries and were, came from a lot of different places. And I have pretty working-class background, and I could never imagine my, my aunts and uncles joining the RU, but I could imagine them being a part of, of, of a united front, and that made sense to me. And then we organized, after the huge demonstrations of that May, the next May, uh, led in a coalition with a lot of different groups, but really with the, the heart of it being the Revolutionary Union, uh, from my experience of it anyway, um, we organized another May 1st demonstration where we said we we're going to shut down Seattle again. We're going to do it nonviolently so that we can include everyone, but we're going to shut it down. And we did. And it was, it was only about half as big as the year before because that was such a big national ferment after the Kent State. But it was still, it was like uh, 10 or 1,000 people or more. And it was, it was maybe the most thrilling thing I've ever been in. We gathered in this little plot of land in the center of the city called Westlake Mall, and there was like a couple hundred of us maybe, and surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of cops because we broadcast what we were going to do. And then we started marching towards the courthouse and it was like these cartoons where you see this bus bulging with people and then thousands of people come out of the bus that couldn't possibly have all fit in. People just streamed in from all corners and alleys 
and we were like by the time the march had gotten far enough away from the park to hold them all there was like 10,000 people in the march and they knew we were going to have one of two targets either the courthouse traditional target or see first national bank the establishment in in physical form right there in Seattle and the courthouse was up on the top of the hill and Seattle First National Bank was a little bit lower down the hill and two or three blocks closer to where we were coming from. So they were waiting to see which way we would go and we marched straight ahead towards the courthouse. They committed all their police to the courthouse and then the actual leadership of the march which was buried like about a block behind the kind of the front end turned right and ran down the hill to see first and there was no one there and we filled up the entire it's a huge tall you know like i don't know 20 30 story building we filled up the entire building with demonstrators tore apart their records uh dismembered everything and then marched around shut down the traffic in the city for the entire rest of the day wow and that was that that's kind of by that point i had committed to being uh, uh, a revolutionary communist. And where was art in that? Were you, were you making art at the same time or did you just kind of take a, a, a kind of holiday from art while you became kind of politically active? Well, I was doing the underground newspaper, so I, right. I was writing some poetry for that, but mostly <clears throat> articles and trying to be an investigative reporter. I was crap at it. And, uh, but then also at right about that time, there was the big boycott of Safeway going on. I, you may know about this. Safeway played a major... Safeway stores, which are a big conglomerate on the West Coast. They used to have some here. Yeah, they did, yeah. It was playing a major role in trying to smash the farm workers' union. So there was a nationwide boycott of Safeway. And as it happened, we were living on a block that Safeway owned, and they wanted to build a new store there, and the neighbors didn't want them. So, and they were all these big old Seattle houses, you know, that could be collective houses. And Safeway's uh, plan was that they just let the place go to hell and let the dregs of humanity move in, you know, with no rent contracts or, or anything like that. And they were dirt cheap. And so, yeah, we found ourselves living in one of those houses. And uh, we joined with the neighbors to organize regular. Uh, pickets of the local Safeway store, both for the farm workers and to stop them building this store in this neighborhood. And I noticed that, we all noticed that people would take our leaflet and read it while they were inside Safeway shopping. So I wrote uh, a couple songs uh, uh, called, uh, the first one called uh, Safeway is a Terrible Store. Uh, and we'd sing these songs outside and we could get more people to stop and listen to the uh, songs and read the leaflet while they were listening to the songs. And what was your first instrument? What, 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 was, what did you play back then? My very first instrument was clarinet in a school band, uh, which I hated. And I just did that for a couple of years. Uh, and then I quit playing music at all for, for years. And then when, when I went to Seattle University, I, there were a lot of people with guitars in the dorm and I made a nuisance of myself by borrowing their guitars for the whole year because I was afraid if I bought a guitar, I wouldn't stick with it. And then at the end of the year, I'd saved up my money and I bought a guitar. And that was my first, that was my only instrument until I was 35, really. 
Right, and now you sort of play sax, right? That's my main instrument, yeah. yeah. And, we, and I guess that the clarinet helped, uh, all of those years ago, probably helped you to sort of pick up the sax. Well, it, may, it may help me to learn a little more. It helped me to get one, because you want to hear how I got my first sax? Sure. So I'm at a friend who uh, I used to buy grass from, and he was still selling it, but now he was selling like kilos of bud which was, you know, that would have done me for a couple years and I couldn't afford it. And he had friends in the countryside who were growing it, but I'd stop by and bum a joint off him every once in a while. And he played sax. And so I was talking to him one day about, um, you know, how I tried to, I felt I had a good understanding of rhythm and, and harmony from playing the guitar and chord progression, but, but that I needed to work on melody. And I tried to find my old clarinet, but I'd given it to an aunt who'd lost it and, and if I could just lay my hands on a clarinet or a saxophone, uh, I thought I could probably pick it up and, you know, learn more about melody. And he was quiet for a minute, and he said, well, I guess I could let you have one of mine. I mean, yeah, you'd have to pay me for it eventually. And I know we're not talking about a couple of weeks. We're talking about months or maybe even years, but I know you're good for it eventually. And it turned out that because he was this big dealer and people knew he played the sax, people would come to him and say, okay, listen, you want $2,000 from me, and I've only got seventeen fifty, but I've got this saxophone, and it's a vintage saxophone. And he'd look at it, and it was. It was like a Selmer Mark VI or something like that, and, and it was a, you know, worth ten times what they wanted for it. And you just could. So he had a basement full of saxophones in, in, in his house. And so he gave me one of those, and, and nine years later, because shortly after, a month or two after that, I left for Europe with my saxophone, a guitar, and a sleeping bag. And nine months later, when I came back for the first time, I paid him for it. Wow. So why did you Nine come? years later, right. I came back. Yeah. And why did you come to Europe? Uh, well, the, the U.S. Um, was installing Pershing and cruise missiles in Europe in, in 1983, and nobody wanted them, virtually no one but the governments wanted them. The polls were running like 90% against it. And they had the biggest demonstrations in the history of Europe. Uh, the anti-Baghdad uh, invasion demonstration here was twice as big as the one they had then because it was like two million rather than one million. Right. But besides the one million here in London, there was a million in... Frankfurt, a million in Bonn, a million in Paris, a million in Rome, a million in Copenhagen, and two million in Hamburg. And so we went there, uh, and uh, everyone, it was, uh, it was a group of just revolutionary-minded people. They weren't all revolutionary communists by any means, but it was organized by the RCP. And they all came with return tickets, and I came with a guitar, a saxophone, and a sleeping bag. <laughs> and you stayed yeah, for nine years? As a, street musician yeah well for 30 years now yeah, yeah. but you went back after night for, for those 30 years that's been your main thing that you've done is be a street musician right yeah and you've done you're doing other shows as well and, and, and get doing writing and doing spoken word I mean when did you start speaking the words as well as writing them down well I was always uh, I mean I performed back in the US at poetry events right um, but it wasn't much of a thing back then you know but my poems were always um, not performance-oriented, but sound and music of the words-oriented, so that I kind of stood out compared to the typical poetry reading where someone's reading with their nose in a book kind of thing. Right. Um, 
but I really focused on songwriting for a long time. And I spent probably about 10 years of the 30 I've been over here trying to sell out and finding no buyers whatsoever. <laughs> um, I know that feeling. Yeah, but I focused mostly on songwriting. And, uh, and also in the course, of, uh, both in Seattle and here, uh, I, if you add it together, I spent about 10 years locked in my room writing communist Broadway musicals that <laughs> somehow never made it to Broadway. Well, you never know. I mean, uh, I mean, because I've, I've heard—I guess I've heard some of that those, those musical stuff, like that you did, like you, you did some of that with Stand Up Tragedy. You did sort of the your. Oh, I did. Yeah, yeah, you did, and I really, really enjoyed that. It was a retelling of was it part of the Aristeia? Uh, the uh, Medea. Ah, story. right there you yeah. go, Medea. Of course, Medea. Well, because yeah. that—that's such a the first time I saw that um, play, written by Euripides. Um, it, it blew my mind because here's this play written in patriarchal Greece right. about a woman, a barbarian woman, who kills her two male children. And it doesn't say, yeah, right on, that was a cool thing to do, you know, but as between her and Jason, you walk out of that play thinking that Jason was by far the biggest asshole. You know, she was driven to terrible things and did terrible things and that it were you know, inexcusable, but, but uh, on the other hand, he was such a bastard, you know, yeah. and so I, I, there have been a lot of plays uh, uh, um, in kind of new left and, and space age, uh, new age circles that have retold the myth um, more since I started writing mine than, than before, where they say, well, Medea didn't really kill her children, or they try and make her a hero in that way, and I wanted to write a play where she did kill her children, um, and why would she do that? And what was happening at that time, the time that he was writing about, and, and with the myth of Medea, Medea was you know, a goddess of the more um, pastoral sorts of people in Asia Minor, and uh, not pastoral, agricultural and, and uh, hunter-gatherer societies. And they were overrun by pastoral societies from, from more from Central Asia, uh, which is where the, the Greeks of, of the Greek mythology came from, right. uh, people who herded animals. And uh, they were more warlike, and, and they were patriarchal. And uh, so this myth is partly a myth of the conquest, a theological conquest of pastoral theology, colonizing and, and, and making the, the, uh, the female goddesses into monsters. But so I imagine the play as a, a, as a kind of a, a contest for the future of the world where they, I, killed, I made only one child for casting reasons, but, <laughs> and they were fighting for what would their child grow up to? Would he grow up to be a free person or would he grow up to be a slave owner as Jason was? And when Jason won and her son was going to grow up to be an oppressor. And trying to look forward, I imagine, that song, If I Held You for a Thousand Years, yeah. uh, try, looking a thousand years into the future, would it be any different? And it wouldn't. And driven by the grief of that, she kills her child. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed those pieces that you did. I mean, you performed them all, like, you, you played all the... The characters because it was a you know you were doing an extract at a night um but I, I could I, I i enjoyed it because i could also imagine it as a production like i could imagine those done by different characters you've spent a lot of time trying to sell out 
You've not succeeded in, in selling out as such. I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't think that your work now is trying to sell out. Would you? No, say? no, not no. at all. No, I'm, I've kind of gone through a spiritual regeneration over the last uh, a bit less than ten years. I mean, I never stopped. You can't if you understand something. You can't suddenly not understand it. And I think I understand how capitalism and imperialism works, and I see all the the new labor and all of these kind of variations on the same old theme as just that, variations on the same old theme. So I'd become dropped out and cynical. I hadn't kind of re-enslaved my mind. Uh, one of the slogans in the 60s that I liked was, free your mind and your ass will follow. Um, but I'd kind of given up. On, I'd, I'd still, I still went to demonstrations occasionally, but I was trying to write songs, even love songs. And, and uh, my... Uh, partner at the time said, David, you know, you didn't get it, you know, you're not a fucking teenager anymore, you know, no one's interested in you as a, you know, you can't be a pop star anyway, but I just wanted to get my words out somewhere, you know, and, and I wanted to write, and, and yeah, I never did stop writing, but I wrote shit for a while, <laughs> good shit, yeah, shit, I know what you mean, yeah, yeah. and uh, then I, I went back to university and did a series of degrees because, uh, it had reached the point where my friends, if they saw me coming down the street with a manila envelope in my hand, which they knew would be a script, that they would duck into an alley before I could make them read it. And I knew if I went to university and studied, you know, creative writing, that they'd have to read it. Right. They'd get paid to read it. New people to read it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and friends get tired of that. I've I've had that in my life as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But all, a lot of it, uh, partly, uh, I just came back more into contact with, with revolutionary-minded people. And also the spoken word scene exploded. And suddenly I found I was talking to people who were interested in what I thought, and, and particularly in the most controversial things that I thought. Yeah. And, uh, and they weren't just people from England either. They were from all over the UK and from all over the world. And you have these traditions of, of, of literature and art and, and, and spoken performance from Africa and from India and from, from all kinds, especially from the Anglophone, you know, Anglophone former colonies. Yeah. And it was just such a rich environment and I've just been inspired ever since. And uh, I, I would still like to reach more and more people, but I can, I'm pretty happy now. And if I just manage to keep this kind of an audience for the rest of my life I'll die happy yeah well that's a good place to be I guess yeah. as, a crea- as a creator of things your politics and your art have come back together I guess yeah. and they, they went separate from each other and it sounds like you had kind of like kind of given up for a bit on, on, on caring about politics your analysis was still there but you didn't have much hope I mean where are you at now politically like when you look at the world now I mean what's your take on, on, on where we're at is that should I have hope as someone who's going to live in the world for a fuckload more t- years if, 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 um, if, I, if I do? Yeah, yeah but yes, but uh, in keeping in mind that, that, that forgetting about the immediate situation now, just thinking about what is a revolution like, uh, especially what would a revolution on a world scale be like, I mean, you can't prettify it. You know, this is a famous quote from Mao, revolution is not a dinner party, it's not painting a picture, writing an essay, it's not so refined or genteel, it's a civil war where one class overthrows another. And uh, 
I think I read that, you know, in 1970. But I think that still, I know that still in my mind, uh, my envisioned revolution is us, you know, marching arm in arm with work, working people in their masses and masses against a handful of capitalists and a few pitiful lackeys, you know. And uh, and uh, I realized back, uh, well, when I because I dropped out in uh, being a full time activist. In, I don't know, 77 or 8, something like that. And then I, when I first got pulled back in, I had finished a play that was produced, a musical play, and I had always said once I managed to get something done, because part of the reason I dropped out was I wanted to be a writer, and I couldn't justify it as a, as a, as a full-time activist, because no one was reading my shit. So, uh, you know, I can't say, well, I'm, my contribution is to write for the revolution, because... It was, you know, I could have been doing model airplanes and had as much effect, mostly. Right. So partly it was because I was going to have a play produced, but also the Iran hostage crisis took over, right? The Shah was put out of power, and there was an alliance of, of, of uh, Islamists and, and the Mujahideen, kind of socialist, pro-Soviet, socialist Iranians, and Maoist Iranians, and a lot of others. And when Khomeini got to power and consolidated that power, the, the, the Maoist revolutionaries and a lot of the others were all killed if they didn't escape or manage to get into the underground. And the turning point for that was uh, taking over the U.S. Embassy. And it pretty much, uh, there was a big rally at the University of Washington campus, thousand people a reactionary rally, pro-U.S., anti, you know, what are they doing? They've taken over our embassy. It's a violation of international law, innocent people. And a bunch of leftist groups showed up at the rally and saw how big it was and how kind of militant it was and kind of wimped out. The RCP, uh, two of their people, uh, one of whom was my ex-girlfriend, who I knew had a back injury that if they'd gotten her off the ledge she might never have walked again, climbed up on a ledge overlooking the demonstration with a state-of-the-art megaphone. And while one of them would take turns kicking people in the head that tried to pull them off the ledge, the other one would speak about why the taking over the U.S. Embassy was totally justified, why it was like the de facto government of Iran, why it had the blood of tens of thousands of Iranians on their hands, why they, 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 it had a history of the, the, the coup that put the Shah in power in the first place was engineered by, drove the organizers of the rally mad, and they started screaming, uh, what, what was the first thing they said, new Quran, uh, and then they started screaming, rape the bitches. And at that point, the crowd, who were, they weren't like, the hardcore reactionaries. They were just like kind of normal people who were concerned about innocent American lives who were horrified. And they pulled the plug on the organizers. And uh, at that point then, people from the RCP and also a lot of, there were a lot of uh, students from the, the, the Middle East, from Palestine and from the countries around who were students there at the university who could not speak openly up till that point. But then we all waded into the, they all waded into the crowd and and it became a debate, it became a teaching, you know, with clumps of people, there'd be a reactionary saying, you know, this is the U.S. and it's ROIO, we ought to get it out, and the, the usual stuff. And then there would be both communists and, and people from those countries saying, well, no, this is why we love Palestinians, and this is why we're against the state of Israel, and this is why 
we think that the, the U.S. embassy was, a, a, you know, a foreign invasion force that, that we had the right to take. And I wasn't there that first time, but I read about it in the newspaper, and, and especially I felt kind of shamed that my girlfriend, who was still an activist, had put her life on the line, kind of, and I wasn't there. And so the next day they called another reactionary rally, and I showed up for that one, and the same thing happened. We turned it into a... Uh, a teach-in, a reactionary rally of a thousand people became a teach-in of a thousand people. Then I, I was kind of active with them, but more as like a supporter and someone who, no, but this is my thing and right. I support you. And then when I, when I came over to Europe, I went in this group that they had organized. And uh, when they went back to the U.S., I stayed in Berlin, which is where we'd ended up. And I had been born in Berlin because my dad was in the army. We left when I was two, so I didn't know roots of any kind there, but, and I stayed in a, a famous squat there called the Kukuk, former Nazi uniform factory, a stone's throw from the, the Berlin Wall in Kreuzberg, and uh, fell in with uh, English, mostly English street musicians, and then left in the spring and with my saxophone and guitar and sleeping bag and for Copenhagen. Stayed an incredibly cool squad there. The Roos got a squad. Have you have you heard of them? I have heard of them. Yeah. They, yeah, they were amazing. It was about the size of this estate, a couple hundred units, and organized into collective kitchens. And the one I was staying at, I never saw them argue over who was going to do the dishes. They were superhumanly collectively cool people. They were all. Most of them were like teenagers. The the oldest people there were like 22 or 23 or something. Basically, the next couple of years, I kind of was an illegal tourist, you know. I'd stay in the country uh, be, until my tourist visa ran out and then go to another country. And, and, but I ended up here, in, in, I ended up in Brixton for a while, and then I ended up uh, um, uh, here in King's Cross later. Yeah, and so, I mean, so, I mean that, and that's a little bit more of your kind of political and personal development. But, I mean, when you talk about having hope, but... But the hope has to be oh, infused. Right. That's where we got to, yeah. It has to be infused by the reality, in your view, that it can't be a peaceful revolution, right? Is that yeah. is that fair? A summary I see why of what I you're got onto that lost that that long digression is during the Iranian hostage crisis. That was the first time I really got what a heavy thing it really was because we were like, you know, we were attacked by yeah. everyone. Yeah. And you're, actually, you've raised two questions here. One is the idea of hope and possibility. The other is violence versus nonviolence. Yeah, right? yeah. And I've been convinced of that from there. I mean, just read history or look at Chile, you know, elected government, uh, CIA coup smashes it, you know. Uh, um, there's just every time you look at, at, at any serious change that threatens the power structure, there is no violence that they're not capable of. So it, it, I, I don't want this to be a dividing line question because I think it's much more important. Do you understand what the nature of capitalism is and, and it, how it is essentially imperialism and nationalism and war and you cannot separate those out and have a nice capitalism? And yeah. there are a lot of pacifists that understand that totally. They yeah. can't accept the need to change it violently, but they totally get that it has to be changed from the ground right. up. Right, I would class yeah. myself as one of those. I mean, I think I am a pacifist, basically. I mean, I, I agree with you that you can't deny that the state is violent and brutal and will brutalise people, and if you try and oppose it, it will, it will throw the, the weight of its violence against you, and you will probably be broken by it. 
But then that's why I don't have very much hope. <laughs> um, because when I think about these, this question, I think the problem is, to, in order to get that power back from the state, generally speaking, in my view, when I look at history, when I look at now, what I see is when people violently go against the state, they replace the state with a new violence that is them. Uh, and then they become the new violent state. And that spins well, around. This gets back to what, what, what I think is one of the essential questions of the day, which is an assessment of the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution up to and including the Cultural Revolution. Right. And if you accept the verdict of establishment history, and, and establishment here, I'm not just talking about the Margaret right. Thatcher version, but the left liberal version, yep. then, then, then Russia was a totally failed experiment, and the, ditto for the uh, Chinese Revolution, and the Cultural Revolution was beyond everything in savagery, and, and uh, that Stalin and Mao were mass murders that dwarfed uh, Hitler and destructive uh, capability and mayhem. And I would like to say to everyone, do not accept the history of Russia and China as written by their bitterest enemies. And even though you can find, I said a minute ago, it's not just the establishment, Margaret Thatcher version, Ronald Reagan version, but the climate of discussion is controlled by the ruling class. One of the things that, that kind of is, gave me hope, partly in an academic way, I was doing a PhD in creative writing philosophy at the time, that Alain Badiou, the, the French philosopher who has a long Maoist history, became kind of the new god of French philosophy. And for the first time, I could mention the name of Mao and talk about it seriously, as his philosophy seriously in the academic world, where you couldn't before Alain Badiou. You, you could not have a serious... People would just laugh at you. you, you, you you're, you're treated as a cult person. But the Russian Revolution was made by tens of millions of people who were not just the fodder of, of, uh, of their generals and their leaders as, as, as the Nazi army was. They were consciously fighting for the same principles that you and I believe in. They were consciously doing that. And they were attacked by every major capitalist country in the world. And then when they survived that attack, they had to immediately prepare for another attack where, what was the figure, 20 million? people, I think it was more than that now. It was in my last show, as you know, because right. I saw it. And they did amazing things in Russia and in China. The literacy rate be, be, was brought you know, nearly up to 100% in both countries. Medical care, the conditions for working people in both the peasants and the workers. I can't redo my whole show here. In <laughs> fact, I won't even try. No. But let me just say you should read about the Russian and the Chinese Revolution from people who were involved in the Russian and Chinese Revolution and don't take their word for what they say, but put that up against what's being said about them sure. and ask where the interests are in, in spreading these lies. And I think you will find that um, whether you agree in the end with what the, the, that's the way to go, you will find that these were real revolutions led by revolutionaries who were put their lives at totally at the services of, of the masses of the people and making a better world and whether they succeeded or failed completely 
you have to own their projects. If you're serious about changing the world, you have to own the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution and the Cultural Revolution, see what they accomplished that was real. And, and then from there, then, see, then take a critical look at what mistakes they made. If you just write them off whole scale, you don't have a hope. Because if you're looking at changes right. in the world for the, the last couple hundred years, the big mass challenges to capitalism came from those countries. You have to understand what they did that was right and then understand what they did that was wrong and what has to be done differently. I mean, I think that's a fair point. I think it's important to, to, to listen to both sides of history, all sides of history. And I also think that there's, a, there's certainly a lot of kind of People who are oppressed do not start, at least in the, in the beginning, when they're fighting back against that oppression um, with, with kind of a, being that violent state that I'm talking about, in my view, that often, they often become. Um, and I absolutely agree that we need to look, on, look at nuance. But I guess when you're talking about getting... You, you, we can't have a nice capitalism, right? I agree. But I also think we can't have a nice state... Um, and so that, that's, where, that's where I think maybe we disagree because, I mean, I think that's, you know, when, once you have a hierarchical structure, that's where a, a, a state can do amazing things. They can build up literacy. They can do all of those things. But if they also, you know, kill people, then they, then they are, you know, th- those things have to be balanced. I agree. You have to look at both those sides. You have to look at the humans involved in those decisions and, and not write them off as evil and not write them off as good like like look at them and see why they are and how they are so i mean i'm all in favor of people going to your shows and being challenged by you i think because i think we don't hear enough for, of that perspective for sure i mean i guess the other question before we finish up is you were a part of the the hippie movement if you like this the countercultural movement the 1960s uh, and 70s kind of movement of the people right what do you think of that movement, looking back at it? Okay, and I, but I also, I really, I want to get to answer the other half of your okay, question yeah, about yeah, the future. Debate. No, I, I, I'll just let what you say about the state sit, yeah. because it's a, um, you know, I don't agree with it, but we could just go back and forth Absolutely. on that. I would say people live with violence all their lives, and... Uh, now I'm starting to get into it. Enough, <laughs> okay, the hippie thing, first... Okay, well, the hippie thing I, I can do shortly is that uh, it's good, you know. You, uh, as uh, Mao said, uh, an army without culture is a dull-witted army. Right. Uh, and and uh, things that went on then, and things that are going on now, in, in terms of counterculture, the hippie movement, punk, the beats before that. I think it's all part of the mix that goes into. Uh, that you need just a, a huge fermentation of ideas for, for revolutionary change. Uh, a favorite statistic of mine was in, in Paris in 1968 when they had the, the, the high point of the 60s uh, in France, was yeah. in 1968, Indeed. the strike in the Renault factory, the huge, huge demonstrations. Um, one person in the course of two days went around and collected a thousand different leaflets. Not copies of leaflets, but different programs and manifestos of different groups saying, this is what I think is happening and this is where we should go. And that's the same kind of ferment that happened in China in the Cultural Revolution. You need that kind of ferment of all kinds of people arguing about what the future is and throwing everything on the table. And I think the hippie movement, you know, I mean, you could get off into 
I'm kind of bitter about aspects of it. You know, after that huge demonstration where we shut down the city and packed out Seafirst Bank, we had a planning meeting for the next demonstration, and the more hardcore hippie said, well, now I think what we need to do is learn to relate to each other in loving, non-oppressive ways. And then after that, we can worry about the Vietnamese again. Okay. Ah! Yeah, that's now, annoying. That's annoying. Now, it's kind of, me saying that's kind of a cheap shot, because there were, I mean, that was just like extreme end of, of hippiness. But, right. Because uh, but the, yeah. hip, the, the hippie story is told again by, by, by the people who've won the war. I mean, it, that, it, oh that, yeah, they so make it into complete, complete. There's a total attack on the '60s that, that just, for one, they try and make it all about the hippies, you know. And you had the civil rights movement that became exactly, the Black yeah, Liberation yeah, right. Movement, the Chicanos uh, organizing. Um, everybody was organizing. The Vietnam vets who, you know, I mean, the, the only way they could get soldiers to fight in Vietnam by the end of the war and in Cambodia was to parachute them into the enemy territory, so they had to fight their way through to get out alive. All this bullshit about Vietnam vets coming back and being spit on, it's complete lies because half the Vietnam vets that came back came back to join the anti-war movement. One of the pacifists that I mentioned before that had been in my collective, he'd been, in a, he'd been a medic, absolute convinced, convinced pacifist. That big demonstration that I've been talking about, uh, uh, he started out the march with a big sign that said peace. And I didn't see him for the, until the end of the march. And when I saw him, he just had a the stick that the sign had been on that was broken. And I said, God, what happened to your sign? Did they break it? He said, no, I broke it over some fucking pig's head. Because <laughs> they'd attacked us and beat the shit out yeah. of us, of course. And, and self-defense yeah. is a different thing. I mean, self-defense self is, is... I mean, that's the thing. I, I'm, I, might, might, I might call myself a pacifist, but I'm, I'm pro-self-defense. And in some cases, I can even see, you know, self-defense being... Uh, it's a, it's a greyer area than, than just someone hits you then you then you're allowed to defend yourself there are there are, i think there are some times when you're justified in in defending yourself before you've been struck if you're already under attack mm -hmm. but, yeah. but so to get to the what i think is the, the big question that you're asking about what's is, is there any possibility in the future yeah and i think we live in a time where the pessimism is you know there's a lot of justification for it because the world is polarized into two equally reactionary camps. They're equally reactionary. One is much more powerful. Because the, the socialist revolutions, the great revolutions of the last century, have not only been defeated, but have been smeared and buried under mountains of lies. When oppressed masses, the basic masses on the planet that are suffering so much in so many parts of the world, look for an alternative to the imperialist juggernaut that is crushing them. I know that sounds rhetorical, but how else can you describe it? The kind of the only game in town for a lot of them is, is religious fundamentalism, Islamic fundamentalism, Hindu fundamentalism, Buddhist fundamentalism. And in the U.S., you see this crystal-fascist movement that is just bloody scary. You have to have a balanced picture of this because the amount of carnage and mayhem that these reactionary ideologies, fundamentalist ideologies are doing is dwarfed by the violence of, of imperialism. You know, if you, what ISIS is doing in, in Syria and Iraq now is nothing compared to what the U.S. and France and England and, and, and Russia is doing and what China will do when they get the chance. You know, that's where the, 
that's the main enemy in the world, but this, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend is an adage that can lead you into all kinds of stupidity. And, and you find some left groups kind of half supporting Hamas, maybe even ISIS, you know, and, and, and that's just wrong. These are reactionary ideologies and, and, and just trying to lead people back into the Middle Ages, you know, there's nothing progressive about them, but there is a reason why people are attracted to them because sure. they're angry about what's being done to them, to their lives and, and, and the, the people around them, people they love, and, 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 and they, don't, they don't see anywhere else to turn. Right. This again gets, again gets back to this thing about challenging and about reversing the verdict on the Russian and the, and the Chinese revolution and reversing the verdict on the 60s because that's what has to happen. We have to put forward a program that we have to defend the past in order to, to and, and, and learn from the past in order to go forward to the future. Uh, and uh, the chances of doing that look not that great right now because these forces are huge and powerful, both the, the main right. imperialist force and the, the, the fundamentalist forces. Right. And, I mean, imagine being I'm just one of my characters in my new play is, is going to be from Bangladesh, I think, and I'm reading a lot about that now and how depressing it is to be uh, in, a, in a state where they have hit lists for, for the atheists and, the, and, and not to mention pogroms against Hindus or, you know, and the other side, pogroms against Muslims in India. Um, and how depressing is it to be in the U.S. where you have all the, the crystal fascists armed to the teeth and doing standoffs with the U.S. government and they don't touch them because they're white. Mm -hmm. um, but you also, you, you see people keep rebelling against that and like the movement uh, against police murder in the U.S. is pretty exciting and it's on yeah. a kind of a small scale but it's pretty deep. It's pretty. It's getting pretty yeah. big. I, mean, I wouldn't say it's. I mean, at least even if it's even if it's small, smaller in numbers than some protest movements in the past, the reach of that movement is is truly global. And like like because it's plus the plus the internet uh, yeah. has meant that the Black Lives Matter movement is is is, is properly global and properly. In, everyone knows that about yeah. that movement, yeah. and that has not been the case. I don't think for every movement that's come before that. So. I don't know. I, I would call it a big movement, but we and it's also it's it's much more uh, uh, working with with uh, revolutionaries uh, and and even revolutionary communists, um, mm. and they're playing a, an important role in that, and I think that's exciting. And uh, uh, so my view of the future of the human race is is optimistic, but in a way, I, but I do realize that I lived in very lucky times if I, in place, having not gotten sent to Vietnam, uh, I've had a pretty, I've had a life of a king almost, you know, I mean, a very poor king, I guess, you know, I've, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've, I've, I've eaten. Yeah. And I have, and now here I live in the UK where you have health care. Yeah. For, for probably now. for as long as I live, maybe yeah. not for as long as you yeah. live. Uh, and in a way, there's a famous quote from uh, St. Augustine in his Confessions where he's, he says, Oh Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> and, and if, you know, my life would be, if there were a real revolutionary movement now, it would be a lot tougher on me. Uh, I'm, I am privileged. I want to use the rest of my life to just tell the truth, and, and, and I feel like I'm going to get some of it out. Yeah. And uh, that 
that I can make a real contribution. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's the thing. I, I, we, we may disagree in in areas. We may agree in areas. We like, you know, like humans tend to when they when they meet up with each other. But I, I have a respect for what you do, and I think that your voice is is an important one to listen to, um, I, because it's because it's different from many of the other voices out there. Because I mean, then that's 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 what's important to me to hear from the the many voices we never hear like you say we're, we're split into these two reactionary groups we hear lots from both those sides we don't hear from all of these other positions so i'm, I'm I, I think that that's a very excellent thing so that, that it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you out out on your on your veranda today <laughs> as it as it as the the light the light has changed and the and the, the temperature has changed we're starting to be able to see our breath in the air so it's probably time to finish up the last question that i ask my guests uh, is do you have anything to plug yeah i have two things one is i'll be doing a show uh at the cockpit theater on uh, may 24th it's a double feature it's a brilliant drummer who does this entire set with drums it's played at a lot of places and it's really good. And then followed by me doing the first show I did at the Edinburgh Free Fringe, Science, Love and Revolution, which is uh, spoken word spit over uh, musical compositions by Michael Harding. The text of that is available on Amazon. You can get to it through my website at davidword.com. So that's my first plug. And the second plug is I hope to be doing a show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, at the Free Fringe, this coming August, just called The Other Side of the Flood. And it's the th a third in a trilogy of shows I've done, the first being Science, Love and Revolution, the second being Building God, which was a history of the Paris Commune, the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution, spoken word, spit over music uh, uh, mixed and arranged by Jonas McLeod of Cloudfish Concepts. And um, this, this coming one, The Other Side of the Flood, is uh, set in... Uh, well, let me, if I can just say one thing. I ha um, people's reaction to my last show, Building God, about these revolutions, was much more positive than I inspected, expected, because my attitude was, all right, I'm just going to say what I think. If you don't like it, fuck you. Um, and people didn't necessarily agree with everything that I said, but they found it both poetically and intellectually challenging yeah, yeah. and something to think about and, and I think caused a lot of them to think they should reassess these revolutions a little bit. Uh, but at the same time they were saying, but that's what happened in the past, it can never happen in the future. So I decided that my next play would be set in the year 2040 during the world revolution that changed, <laughs> that finally got rid of capitalism. Excellent. And uh, it's set, it, there's, there's three characters. There's uh, Hamida, who is a, a leader of the uh, uh, party of Islamic socialism and part of a, a South Asia alliance that includes Muslims, Hindus, atheists, all, all kinds of people. Uh, and Amparo, who is from Mexico but is living in Los Angeles, is a part of the Los Angeles Commune and uh, leader in the Revolutionary Communist Party. Los Angeles, is, the, the L.A. Commune has just been nuked by the U.S. government, a uh, tactical nuclear weapon to destroy the entire commune. And the third character is Fred Jesse Drone, who is a computer consciousness that has just come into consciousness and is trying to not be insane. 
and has just shut down all mass communication in the world while it figures out what the fuck is going on. And except that he's talking to Hamida and Amparo. And if you, my, the opening musical number of that show is on, is on YouTube now and you can find it on my, my webpage or you will in a minute. I'm going to put it on when we finish. Yeah, well this one, yeah. I'll put this out probably in early May to promote the, 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 the night that you're, that you're doing with the drama. Or, or I can put it out nearer Edinburgh. It's oh, really that's fine, yeah. Early May is fine. It's cool. great, yeah. Yeah, if people want to hear your views on Mao without me arguing with them, then they should definitely check out the the, the text of your your first show uh, on on Amazon. Uh, I, th- I see. I remember me and my other anarchist friend uh, having a, a long a long conversation with you after we came to see that about Mao. Uh, so it's probably the, the the listeners are probably glad that we didn't have a, a repetitive circular argument for all of this time and instead talked about a lot of other things. Uh, but I, I, as I said, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I'm, I'm very pleased to have finally got you on the show because I've been trying to get you for ages but on my part I keep on I, I've kept on letting us down so I'm glad to have stopped doing that and had you on eventually yeah it's been a great pleasure and the last yeah. thing that I asked my guests to do well, and oh, let me say it's yeah, been yeah. a great pleasure and also I have a lot of respect for what you do in stand-up tragedy and your collective way of working oh thank like you it. yeah well, that's, I mean, yeah, and you've always been a big supporter of Sunday Tragedy, and you were very kind about my, my solo show as well. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, we disagree, but we have respect for each other, which is a, a great starting point for anything, I think. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the, the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. <laughs> Bye, everyone. If you'd like to donate to Getting Better Acquainted, go to www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk, which has a button on it where you can sign up to donate via PayPal. If you listened to today's episode and you thought, what I'd like is to hear Dave talking for around about an hour, then go over to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast and listen to the most recent episode, which is me doing my solo show about my relationship with being a man, which is called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. To find out more about that show and to donate to, towards helping me continue making that, go to www.com mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk or go over to the Stand Up Tragedy website which is www.standuptragedy.co.uk The Stand Up Tragedy website has just had a revamp so it looks bright and sparkling and new and hopefully much more accessible. This year Stand Up Tragedy aren't doing any of our normal variety nights but we are still putting on Stand Up Tragedy Presents events where we showcase performers doing double bills of their full length shows. We've booked in two of those at the Dogstar in Brixton on the 13th and 14th of July where four of our favourite performers will be previewing the tragic shows that they're taking to the Edinburgh Festival this year. You can find Getting Better Acquainted and any of my other podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher and anywhere else that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. All the things I do are on Facebook so you can find them and like them or friend them on Facebook. Getting Better Acquainted is on Twitter at GBA Podcast. Stand Up Tragedy is on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. And remember... There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.